those of us who are children or, or grandchildren, there's a couple things that we do, and we do them with really good intentions. We want our children to love the Bible. And so when they're really small, we will teach them all the stories, all the uh, fairy tale type stories. We might even embellish some of them just a little bit. You know, uh, we'll talk about Noah and his ark because kids like animals. And we want our kids to love the Bible. And so if they have an animal or something that's neat they can relate to, then maybe they'll love the Bible. And we'll talk to them about all these neat things that Jesus did. We'll talk to them about walking on the water. And we'll talk to them about how he took that basket and just kept bringing food and kept bringing food out of it. And there was so much, they were able to pick up a bunch of it left, you know, left over. And we'll talk to them about um, all these, these fairy tale type stories, but we do it in complete desire for them to love the Bible. We'll talk to them as they get a little bit older about David. And we'll talk about David and how young and how little David was when he went up against, the, against that mean big old giant Goliath. But if you actually read that story, David was probably in his mid to late, you know, early to mid-twenties, and he was probably a very large individual. Probably wasn't a small guy. But we tell them those stories because we want them to find themselves in the stories. We want them to love the Word of God, so we tell them all these kind of fairy tale things which happen, which really happen, but we really key on those. And then as they get a little older, we move into some other stories, and we don't quite balance them out just right. We're not doing anything wrong. We want our kids to, to love the Bible. But then, as they get just a little bit older, and they get into our middle school group, we begin to tell them all the things they can't do and all the things that they have to do. We tell them all the things that the Bible says you cannot do these things. But you have to do these things. And sometimes, accidentally, we don't revisit those stories that we told them when they were really, really young. We don't go back through and give them uh, some more story behind those, those miracles and behind those amazing things that, that, that those great heroes in the Old Testament did. And then when they get to high school and they graduate, you know, we're losing so many of our young people. Some have said it's 50%. I don't know if that's accurate or not. I think it kind of depends on the congregation. Some congregations have better success than others. I don't know exactly what it is, but the numbers are saying we lose about 50% of our young people. And then we sit back and we wonder what happened. Well, we told them about a fairy tale book, and as they moved forward and, and got older, we just told them it was a rule book. And, and then they get out and they're on their own, and it's hard for them to relate to that book. Now, the intentions were always good. There was never a negative intention. Nothing was taught that was incorrect. Nothing was taught that was wrong. Everything we were trying to accomplish was for them to love the Word of God. I was that way growing up. I grew up in a congregation that the reason you studied the Bible was so that you could prove other people wrong. That's why you studied I heard more sermons on Rubel Shelley than I did Jesus Christ. And that's a, that's a fact. I heard more things about the people who are wrong than how I was supposed to live my life right. 
And I remember, I remember being out of high school not too long. I was at Freed Hardeman. And I was trying to learn, you know, trying to piece together the Bible. And, and I just started kind of in my mind piecing together stories. And what it sounded like, because nobody ever went over it with me, it sounded like God just couldn't get it right. I was trying to be honest with myself. But it sounded like God just had a plan, and that one didn't work, so he tried another, and that didn't work, and he tried another, and he just kept going and kept going. He starts off in the garden. We're in the Garden of Eden, and he's got this man and this woman, and everything's perfect. Eat from that tree. Don't eat from that tree. Oh, no, they messed up. What are we going to do? We've got to kick them out of the garden. We've got to start all over. Well, we get down to chapter 6, and everybody's bad, so we've got to send a flood and kill everybody and start all over. It's not too many chapters later in the book of Genesis till they're already building the tower trying to find God. And he says, I just got to scatter you people and give you different languages so that you'll stop trying to do this foolishness. Then he puts them in, or has them in Egyptian bondage. And Moses comes back and leads them out they get right outside of the, I mean, just not too far down the road from Egypt, and they're begging to go back. So he says, tell you what, I'll do something really great. I'll part the sea, and you can walk right across, and I'll kill all your enemies. And so he does that. And then they march right up to the promised land. They send those spies in, and the spies come back and say, there's no chance we can have this land. There are giants over there. They are absolutely huge. We're like grasshoppers to them. And the people say, well, God's not, you know, he's brought us over here to kill us. He says, well, it's not going to be y'all that are going to take it. I'm going to send y'all out in the wilderness. I'm going to let you die out there, and I'm going to let the next generation come in. And just to show that that's what he was doing, he had them march right up to the Jordan River, and he stopped it just like he did the Red Sea and parted it for them to walk over on. Well, they got over and they camped in at Gilgal and they knocked the walls down at Jericho. But then they go down to Ai, just a really small town. And they get beat. And Joshua begins to feel like he's the problem. He's done something wrong. But there was one man who had messed up. Well, then God finally gives them all the south. And they come back and they take all the north and they settle in. Well, they still couldn't get it right. They begged for a king. We want a king. I don't want to give you a king. Well, we want a king. A king's going to be awful to you, all right? We'll take one. So he gave them a king. They had the situation with the judges where there were all these cycles, eight cycles. That There's different ways of, of defining those cycles, but basically this was the idea. They were right in the eyes of God. He blessed them. Then they'd mess up. So he'd punish them. They'd realize that they had messed up and that's why they were being punished. They'd cry out to God and beg for forgiveness. Then when they begged for forgiveness, he'd forgive them. And they were right in the eyes of God again. But then they'd mess up again and just in a big cycle it went. It's like it was like he just couldn't quite get things going. So he finally sends them into another captivity and starts sending prophets to them. Then they're let out of the captivity, but they can't get right, that right either. They're trying to build the walls, but they forgot to build the temple. And Haggai comes in and says, you forgot about the temple. you got to build this temple over here. 
They finally get the temple built, and then he just goes silent for a while. And it's almost like he said, all right, well, Jesus, we've tried everything else. Why don't you get in there? Jesus, we've tried everything else. I don't think these people are going to listen. I mean, we've got a long, long fight with these folks. They're not paying any attention. I'm just going to send in the heavy hitter right now. And they didn't get that right either. They killed him. And they hung him on a cross. And so it appears as though he just established the church and said, I'm going to back off a little bit. That is what I thought the Bible was after looking at a rule book fairy tale system. But then as I studied more, I realized that that is not at all what was happening. That that is not even close to what was going on. It just appears that way because we have limited vision. We can only see the way God is through our eyes and then what he has communicated with. So we feel like like that's what it, the, the way we would handle it or our perspective. Maybe you've never thought of it that way, but I've talked to many people who have thought of it that way. But then you step back and you say, wait just a second. There's a, a, a study called systematic theology. This is where you read Matthew, you read uh, Genesis through Revelation, but you look for a specific theme. Some people say, man, I do a good job just to, to read through the Bible every couple years. There are folks out there who will sit down and they'll read the whole Bible and they'll say, I'm going to look for the word land. I'm not going to Google it or I'm not going to look. I'm going to actually read and find the word land. You'll see the land is a big deal all throughout the Bible. All throughout the Bible, land is a big deal. There's a couple things that are just strings that run all the way from the very beginning of creation to the very last verse in the book of Revelation. And that message has never changed. The message has never changed. We are the ones that have changed. We as people on this earth, humankind are the ones who have changed along the way. God's message has always been the same. He has spoken an unchanging message since the beginning of time, and that is, I want reconciliation with you. I want to offer you salvation so you can be right in my sight. You can go back through every single one of those scenarios and look at them from God trying to save his people. You start in the garden, and they messed up. They changed. They changed the situation by their mistake. So he offered them the opportunity of salvation. Mankind as a whole got it wrong. Everything about everything they thought was wrong. I mean, everything they wanted to do was wrong, but there was one family, and so he offered mankind salvation through that one family. He was trying to offer them salvation when he brought them out of Egypt and when he crossed the Red Sea with them. He was going to offer them rest and salvation when he was going to give them the promised land. And then when he finally did. You see, here's the bottom line. The unchanging message of the Bible has always been that God wants you to be with him more than you want to be with him. 
That has always been the unchanging message. God wants His people with Him in heaven more than we want to be there. He has always provided us a way to fix our own mistakes at His expense, at His cost. And so we've assigned tonight that God speaks an unchanging message. But you read through the Bible and you see a very, very significant change. I mean, you read through the Bible and you come up with this Old Testament and the next thing you know, we got a New Testament and none of it looks the same. 633 laws in the Old Testament. The outline of them is the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments not even repeated in the New Testament. Some have said there's even more laws in the New Testament than there were in the Old, but they were all so specific. Do this. If you do this, then this will happen. Don't do this. If you don't do this, this will happen. If you do something that you're not supposed to do, this is what's going to happen. And the whole point was to guide them. When Moses couldn't go into the promised land and he, and he spoke those four speeches that we call Deuteronomy, the second law, he was reminding them of everything before they crossed over because he wasn't able to go. In chapter 6 and verse 24, after multiple times saying, do every single thing that God tells you to do, he says all of God's commands, all of his statutes, all of his ordinances are for your good always. God has always, always wanted what's best for us. He has always wanted what's best for His creation. But He gives us the choice. He says, I'll tell you what you need to do, and I'll give you the option to do it. Now that's a very interesting statement, because I want you to go to the book of 1 Peter. And I want you to go to chapter 1 with me for a second. I want you to look at this very interesting verse about salvation. He's talking about salvation in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 10. And he said, of this salvation. That's what he's always been trying to communicate with us is salvation. Of this salvation. The prophets in the Old Testament, there's a difference in the Old and the New. We're about to look at that. There's a difference in the Old and the New Testament. Of this salvation, the prophets in the Old Testament have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. So he's talking to people in the New Testament and said in the Old Testament, they were curious because they were prophesying about the things that you now have. Searching these prophets. Searching, verse 11, what or what manner of time? The Spirit of Christ. Whoa, 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 whoa. The who? We're talking about prophets in the Old Testament. And Peter is talking about prophets having the Spirit of Christ in them. There has always been a message of salvation. It wasn't an afterthought. It was a plan from the beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, we have what we call the first messianic prophecy. And there were hundreds after it. And Jesus fulfilled every single one. There's a difference in the Old and the New Testament. There's a difference in the laws and the commandments, but the message 
is still the same. The message is, I want you with me more than you want to be with me. And I will provide a way for you to have your sins forgiven. That's always been the message. Let's keep reading this passage of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time, verse 11, the Spirit of Christ was in them, was indicating when he, Christ, in them testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So in the Old Testament, they were prophesying about something that was going to come. And they were very, very curious about that, very interested in that. They wanted to know what they were prophesying about and what that meant because they couldn't have forgiveness of sins. They couldn't have forgiveness of sins. I want you to hang on to that. We'll come back to that in just a second. But he says they were so curious about it. Now look at verse 12. To them, these Old Testament prophets, to them it was revealed that not to themselves. To them it was revealed that it, they weren't talking to themselves. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us. They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which even angels desire to look into. Things which even angels desire to look into. Why? Well, you could keep reading in the book of Hebrews and you get to chapter 2 and you find out in a discussion on the angels that God doesn't give assistance or aid to the angels like he does the seeds of Abraham. Well, what that means is, is an angelic being is created in the presence of God. They don't need hope because hope is for us wanting to be with him. They don't need faith. They don't need faith because they're seeing him. We've never seen God. They're in the presence of God. They don't need to hope to get to heaven. They don't need to have faith in God or faith in Jesus. They're looking at Him. What they needed was love. And how do you show love? You show love through obedience. And so when they were created, they were created with a purpose and an option. We know that because we know angels fell, so apparently they could choose to rebel against what they were created for. But salvation was never offered to them. Because they were in the presence of God, and if they chose to rebel against Him, there was no salvation from that. The message has always been, I want you in heaven more than you want to be there. And even though the Testament's changed, this salvation that all these people in the Old Testament knew was coming to us, they, they wanted to know about, and it was such a strong message that even the angels were curious and interested in what God is offering us. But why the change? Why the change of Old Testament to New Testament? How can it be that there's one whole set of laws in the Old Testament and a whole different set of laws in the New, it seems like? Why was it written so much differently? Where is the God who gets up on top of mountains and when people pray to them, he sends lightning? Where is the God who allows the earth to swallow people up and sends angels to kill 
Thousands and thousands of people. Where's the God who speaks to people? Where's the God who sends animals that talk? Where is he? He's the same God. The message has always been the same. I want you in heaven with me. And you don't even know how much you want to be here. And so in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 11, Therefore if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. So he's saying if there was perfection under the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? Look at verse 12. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there was also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man is officiated. And he goes on to say the fact that there had to be a change of the law. So here's why. And this is really important. If the plan was always for Jesus to die for our sins, and that wasn't an afterthought or a series of mistakes when he finally just called in the big guns, when would be the best time for that to happen? Would, that be, would the best time for that to be happen be right after they get kicked out of the garden? And then them send Jesus in instead of Cain killing Abel, Cain kill Jesus? Like if the plan was always to offer salvation to mankind through the blood of Christ, when was that supposed to happen? Paul says it was in the fullness of time. What that means is, is God in his infinite wisdom knew exactly when the salvation message needed to be offered on a, uh, on a sacrificial cross for us. There was a change of the law. And the New Testament looks a whole lot different from the Old Testament. What I want to let you know is this. The change was to our advantage. If the prophets and the angels are curious about what you and I know, then sometimes I think we might overlook the message. The message has always been the same. But now I want to talk about a second change. That's an obvious change. There's a big change in the law. But now I want to talk to you about a second change. Even though our culture changes, the message doesn't change. They don't get to define us. And they don't get to define morality. And they don't get to define faithfulness. And they don't get to define sin. And they don't get to define love. Uh, we live in a world that is so upside down, and it seems like it's more and more upside down every day. Let me give you some thoughts I have on this. First of all, they will say that love equals tolerance. That love is tolerance. And tolerance is letting me do whatever I want to do. Therefore, the world that we live in says that love equals letting me do whatever I want to do. That is not what the Bible says love is. 
That is in no way what the Bible says that love is. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 21, Mark is actually the only one that mentions this. This, this story is told in three of the Gospels, and Mark's the only one that puts it this way. It's the story of the rich young ruler. You know that story. This wealthy young gentleman comes to Jesus. I want to go to heaven. How can I have eternal life? Well, you know the laws. And he starts going through them. Doesn't even go through them really in order. And that man's like, yes. that's me. That's what I've been doing. That's what I've been doing. Well, here's the interesting part. Jesus wasn't done. Jesus had something very difficult to tell this gentleman. Something this man did not want to hear, but he needed to hear. And Mark in chapter 10 and verse 21 is the only one who mentions it this way. It says that Jesus looked at him and loved him and said. He looked at him and loved him and said. Love is not... Letting people do whatever they want to do. But the world that we live in wants to try to define love that way. And then they want to try to define hate like this. Hate equals disapproval. Disapproval equals opposing me and what I want to do. Therefore, hate equals opposing me and what I like to do. We don't talk about sin because we hate people. We talk about sin because we love people. Homosexuality will always be a sin. They don't get to change that. Transgenderism will always be against the nature that God created. And they don't get to change that. And for them to come and call it hate speech, they can never call it hate speech because we don't hate them. We talk about Jesus and we talk about forgiveness and we talk about love and we talk about sin because we love people. Not because we hate them. And they don't get to tell us how we feel. And they don't get to tell us how we ought to see things. God has the right to do that, and He alone, unless, of course, we decide to let them. You know, it's, it's sort of the nature of mankind that if a person feels very strongly about something morally, then they will dig their feet in right here. That's us. We've dug our feet in right here. And they would like for us to come just two or three more steps. But we aren't moving. So they bring up something absolutely absurd. And we go nuts. We talk about it. At, we get in arguments. We talk about it at home. We talk about it all the time. And the next thing you know, they, they, we're over here saying, I'm not going to do that. I mean, y'all wanted this, and we're okay with this, but I'm not doing that. Abortion's a perfect example. I ain't even close to done. We'll see what happens here. They wanted, let's get it right up here. 
We're saying no. They say, well, why don't we start killing babies after they're born? We say, that's ridiculous. We'd rather have this. And guess what? They get what they want. We have got to remember who we are because even though culture changes, God's Word doesn't. And we won't be judged based on what everybody else says. We'll be judged based on what God says. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Amos chapter 5 and verse 5 says, Hate evil and love good. Jude verse 23 says, Hate even the garments defiled by the flesh. We're supposed to be appalled by sinful things. And our consciences cannot be seared. They don't get to define us. We belong to God. And we are His people. We follow Him. If He calls it a sin, and we say God says it is a sin, we aren't judging anybody. We are simply telling you what God has said. And they will never be able to accuse us of hating them if we don't hate them. The last thing I want to make mention of is this. The sacrifice changed, but the message didn't. The Testament changed. There were laws that changed, but the message never changed. Our culture is constantly changing, but the message never changed. And now I want you to think real quickly about the sacrifice. Go to Hebrews chapter 10 with me for a minute. Maybe one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. In the Old Testament, they had five offerings that they were supposed to give, five sacrifices. There was the burnt offering and the grain offering and the peace offering and the sin offering and the trespass offering. Three, two of those were voluntary. One was thanksgiving, just, hey, I feel good. Thank God has blessed me. And God says, if you just want to thank me for something, offer a grain offering. There was another voluntary one, the burnt offering that was in case you had committed a sin that you didn't know about and you wanted to go to God with that. The peace offering was a mandatory one for gratitude. The sin offering was mandatory for specific un unintended sins. And the trespass was mandatory offering for sins that required restitution. So they all played a part. Here are things you have to do to say I'm sorry and to say thank you. Here's some extra things you can do if that's what you want. But now in Hebrews chapter 10, the sacrifice has changed. But the message is still the same. For the law, verse 1, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of those things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then they would not have ceased, for then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers once purged would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year. For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. He's talking to people who live in and around Jerusalem, and there is a Jewish faith that has continued, and he's writing to those people, and they're wondering whether or not they should go back to the Jewish faith because they are watching all these people come in and out of Jerusalem with all these burnt offerings, with all these things, day in, day out. 
All these feasts, all these festivities, Jesus has not returned. They're wondering if they need to go back. And he says, they have their sacrifices, but they can't make anything perfect. But your sacrifice is different. Skip down to verse 11. And every priest over there stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. What they're doing doesn't matter. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies were made his footstool. Are you ready for this? Verse 14, if you like to underline verses and you don't have a tablet because you don't want to have lines on your tablet, but if you have a Bible and you like underlining verses, I would highly recommend underlining verse 14. Verse 14 says, for by one offering, the offering has changed. The sacrifice has changed. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Let me tell you what that means. God wants to look at you and see only perfect. It's my favorite verse to talk about. God, his unchanging message is that he desires to take away your sins. And what he wants is to look at you and see only perfection. And that message has never changed. But it's always been grace and faith and an expectation of obedience. That has been the message from day one. I'll offer you something that you don't deserve because I want you with me more than you want to be with me. The testament changed. The culture changes. The sacrifice has changed. But the message has always been the same. I believe we're done.